0: Welcome to Motozan friends ultimate motorcycling's weekly podcast brought to you by the spectacular Yamaha R7 it's a new generation of supersport machine my name is Arthur Coldwells MV Agusta is one of the truly storied names in motorcycling and the heritage of the Italian brand is evident in every single one of its spectacular machines Recently, I had the opportunity to ride the Brutale 1000 RR in Italy and I was able to chat with TJ Adams about the machine. As it happens, she is the owner of an MV Agusta herself. Her ride is a 2019 Brutale 800 RC. That's the limited edition, super-sporting version of the Brutale 800. These incredible machines are built by MV Agusta as motorcycle art. TJ and I pass our thoughts on, and whether we agree with that sentiment. Associate Editor Neil Wyan brings us our snippet this week. Lately, he's been trying out the Senna Impulse Modular Helmet with the built-in comm system, and he gives us his thoughts on that. In our second feature segment, Editor-at-Large Neil Bailey chats with legendary motor journalist Matt Oxley. Matt's incredible MotoGP reporting resume is made even more credible by his own seriously accomplished racing pedigree. Actually, he's won at the club and the endurance levels, and he's competed and won at the Isle of Man TT as well. During his long journalism career, he's got to know legends like Mick Doohan, Kenny Roberts, Valentino Rossi, and even older generation riders like Gary Nixon. They've all been written about by Matt. So if you're interested in what it's like to be a moto journalist and a career MotoGP guy, then Matt will fill in the blanks. For those of you with a sensitive disposition, I should warn you that there's some salty language in this chat, so be a little careful. So from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoyed this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street. Where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of supersport machine, it's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZFR7 is your gateway. Discover how the YZFR7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZFR7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. All right, so we're here and we're going to talk MV Agusta today. Um, I got to ride the Brutale 1000RR recently in Italy and you are the proud owner of... Well,
1: I have the Brutale 800RC and so I've had a chance recently, more recently to ride that more often.
0: Okay. So that's the limited edition one, isn't it? That's it the is. sort of the top of the line. Yeah. Very nice. Yes, very nice. It's
1: very pretty is probably the wrong word. People will be squeaming to hear that, but it's very it looks very brutal actually, in yeah. a pretty way.
0: That came with the also came with the SC Project Titanium uh, pipe on it, full pipe and flash DCU. So, it's a serious bit of kit, it puts out not quite 150 horsepower but…
1: 148 I think. I think 148, mm.
0: something like that. Anyway, serious bike. The 1000RR that I put out, uh, that I was riding, um, puts out 208 horsepower. So again, inline four-cylinder versus an inline three, but both serious, serious bikes.
1: Yes,
0: wow. So, Here's the, the, the first thing that we want to talk about, is what was your first impression of, of the bike when you first...
1: When bought... I very first saw the bike, it was love at first sight, hence the purchase. And it was around the 22,000 mark, I think. It's a 2019 model, and I yeah. bought it in 2020. Yeah. The, the looks are killer. It's just gorgeous, and it gets a lot of attention.
0: Yeah. It's got the the red tubular chassis on it, and... Um, and the single-sided swing arm at the rear, it's just absolutely stunning. Stunning, its uh, they call it motorcycle art,
1: and yes. I don't think they
0: exaggerate.
1: Yes, I, I would agree. So I sat on it in the showroom, and it felt too tall for me, but then we discussed whether or not I could have that lowered. Um, so purchased the bike and lowered it by buying a new dog bone, which... Right. you'll probably be able to explain better the
0: dog bone is basically the linkage between the the shock and the swing arm
1: that's a much better way of doing things than thinking on any bike really taking sort of padding out of the seat or anything like that
0: oh much better yeah yeah yeah. it's much better it does it, it it shortens the amount of suspension travel you've got because you have to lower the front by the same
1: amount i think it lowered the bike by about half an inch but that's a big difference when you're from tippy toes you can then get balls of your feet and as you kind of get settled on the bike you can get to flat footing i can flat foot on that now okay and it makes me more confident sure
0: and it really doesn't affect the looks of the bike at all um, or the handling or anything i I mean ultimately it would but not really
1: having said that it was done by john ethel who
0: at jet tuning in
1: camarilla he adjusted yeah the whole bike is still um safe and does what it should do you can't just do this sort of thing yourself
0: Uh, yeah i mean i think people people could do it themselves but uh, you know it's not terribly complicated mm. but it was nice handing it to john ethel who really knows what he's doing um so it was nice he, he he got the balance of the bike right and it's all good
1: so once once that was done and i started riding it and and got more used to it i have to say i had no problem with the seating position at all okay um the riding position my arms reached the handlebars my hands reached the, the, the grips okay. easily um the levers are adjustable, which is good because I have smaller hands than a lot of people, not everybody, and I like to have them a bit closer. Um, but the seat itself, it's a funny old thing, when you look at it, you think it's going to be really uncomfortable because there's a very small amount of padding to sit your little butt on and there's a gap underneath the seat, this is part of the design, which is why it's so aesthetically pleasing, you can put your hand through this gap underneath the seat. So you think it's going to be a really harsh seat, but it's actually very comfortable. You're sort of forced to sit right into the bike, and be part of it, and I, I love it.
0: Right, the thousand RR unfortunately was a completely different ball game. Uh, the RR, the RS version um, is a lot more upright and a lot more ergonomically friendly. The RR is is sort of built as uncompromising performance, and yes, if you're riding the bike fast or you're on track, it's got that sort of. It doesn't look like it, but it essentially has a long stretch to the handlebars, and it has a essentially a super sport riding position. So for an old guy like me, it is really not comfortable. It's rideable, and I could deal with it, but it was not comfortable. Um, the seat, likewise, is made from you know reconstituted granite. So uh-huh. yeah, it's it, 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 you know if you're going to put on a lot of mileage, and we did put on a lot of mileage in a couple of days, but. But yeah, it was it was not comfortable, it was not a comfortable bike. Certainly, I would own one in a heartbeat. That doesn't actually spoil the bike for me. I would own one in a heartbeat. But if I did, I would either consider buying the RS model, which does not come with the uh, Olin's electronic suspension, it just has Marzocchi suspension, but the bike is a lot more ergonomically friendly, or I would buy an RR and I would have the, the handlebars adjusted so that, uh, you know, uh, there must be some sort of more upright you know, way to convert it to a more upright riding position.
1: Yeah, if that's what you need. But I mean with this type sure. of bike, it depends horses for courses. What you would be doing on this type of bike is not going on long touring sort of days. No. It would just no, no, no. go out no, for a these blast. Are hyper
0: sports bikes.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So okay, moving along to the motor and gearbox, what are your thoughts on the brutale?
1: Well, very reactive, a bit feisty in fact, it's quite demanding. When I look at, if we've got a couple of bikes here, we have magazine bikes sometimes, I'm looking at the ones that we're going to ride. I sort right. of grip my teeth ready to ride my own bike
0: right.
1: because it does exactly as uh, it wants to do.
0: Right. <laughs> the Yamaha XSR900 that you had for, for several months, as a riding bike, you probably preferred that, I don't know, did
1: you? Yes, because it's beautifully friendly. Okay. Whereas um, the Brutale is, is looking you in the eye and wanting a bit of a challenge.
0: <laughs> oh, right. The 1000RR, uh, it was absolutely just fantastic, the way it rides. It's Euro 5 compliant, so it's impressive that they've managed to, uh, to make the motor work so well. Uh, they've lightened a lot of components inside the motor. They've added a balance shaft, so it's really super smooth. Um, and your bike's pretty smooth as well, it is. I think, Yes, it, it
1: is. Yeah.
0: yeah, they're both really smooth and beautiful engines, both got radial valves, and so you get that intake roar when you open the throttle. My god, these bikes are so nice. The motors just so sell you on it. The fueling connection on the 1,000 R is what really sold me. I couldn't believe it. I've never felt a throttle connection like it. Even in first gear through slow corners, I could just wind on the throttle, and the thing was as smooth as butter. So nice to ride it. And when you hit about 7,000 RPM on the 1,000RR, it goes from being this nice, sweet, sweet little bike that Mm. just rides so beautifully and so gently, and all of a sudden, it gets real angry real fast, <laughs> and holy moly, that acceleration is savage on the 1,000 RR. All 208 horses come in, and sweet mother of God, you'd better be holding on. What a fantastic <laughs> I'm so
1: glad you were doing the test on that bike,
0: because
1: <laughs> 7,000 is about what I ride at. <laughs> so, um.
0: You've revved it out, though. I've heard you coming onto the freeway. You've revved it out. I because mean, I, I think...
1: love the noise as well. That yeah. SC project exhaust pipe is just it's phenomenal. Spectacular.
0: So what what is the throttle connection on that?
1: It is smooth. It's instant, um, but it is smooth.
0: Because the, again, the engine internals internals on that Brutalia are so light, the thing spins up in a second. It does. So it's so reactive, and you you enjoy that, or you as it?
1: I do. I find it as I said earlier. I find it challenging. I have to really think about the way I'm riding and make sure I live up to expectations. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I thoroughly enjoy it.
0: Okay. The uh, gearbox, both of these bikes come with up and down quick shifters, which yes. is really nice. Um, the clutch, the, the, the clutch. I suppose I could say it was a little heavy on the Brutale 1000. But the truth of it is, is that you only use the clutch for moving away. And the rest of the time you're using the quick shifters. You do, it's success. just not sloppy.
1: That's the thing. It's, it's not all slimy. very precise. You feel as though you're really on a machine of quality.
0: Right. Everything on these bikes feels tight to me. It yes. feels absolutely every piece is in tune with uh, all the other pieces everything is reactive and tightened together
1: and you feel that the moment you sit on everything's it's close to you you're right within the bike and everything is close all of the controls are sort of niched into you
0: it really is a riding experience unlike anything else okay so the chassis suspension um My bike, the 1000RR, had the Olin's electronic suspension, which has a sort of dynamically controlled, electronically controlled suspension. So there are little servos inside the suspension that change the damping characteristics according to how you're riding. So if you're on a bumpy road, it gives you more flexibility in the suspension. If you're on a smooth road, it tightens the suspension up. And it was fantastic, it's flawless. And that Olin's EC suspension is on lots of different bikes nowadays. Sounds awesome. It's really awesome. Your bike has the uh, Marzocchi fork on it and the Sachs uh, rear rear shock. So how do you feel? Is the suspension? Can you feel anything on that? What's well, when it like? you're
1: riding on pretty good roads, it's all just fine. But when you get those incredibly big lumps on the, the you get those on the freeways. On the yeah. freeways, you get those big bumps, and if you get a sudden pothole, it's pretty painful. It's harsh. Yeah, it's pretty harsh. Yeah. So you have to pay the price for having such a superb bike. <laughs> right. It's not suspension wise kushti it's not it's a bone bone shaker once you hit a bump yeah
0: but it handles beautifully oh
1: yes yeah and it stays online. i mean there's no question that you're going to go offline if you hit a bump even when you're leaned over right right
0: so what is the handling like on the brutale is again is it like the motor is it super reactive and and or or is it pretty neutral? I mean, how do you feel about the handling?
1: It, it is um, reactive, yes. It's very, um, it's neutral handling. That's to say it does what you want it to do when you want it to do it. But it's very positive, and then it's ready for the next yeah. twist and turn. It's uh
0: Yeah, I've found the handling on both bikes, I've ridden the Brutali 800 and the 1000RR. Certainly the 1000RR is slower turning, again, partly because of the supersport riding position. Um, if we were on a really tight, sort of twisty, technically challenging road, the Brutali 800 would leave the 1000RR in the dust. I mean, it really would. Um, but they both handle really well. I mean, they're built for speed. high speed corners both of these bikes are absolutely fabulous They're really good okay brakes how do you feel about that
1: well okay I like the one that I've got so I really only have a front brake the back brake just gave up not long after I'd started riding yeah and we took them back to the dealership and we had great service Pro Italia and had them bled and they talked us through that this is a bit of an issue so you know when you're on the roads of course you're not too bothered because you're using your front brake anyway right and it is great it's um smooth it's not snatchy and you can feel it's a strong brake yeah, um, but the rear brake i kind of like to have one there because we ride across gravel quite a bit to where we're often sort of staying right but hey-ho all in yeah. all that would not stop me from buying the bike because <laughs> it's just such a trip to be riding it
0: yeah yeah the again the thousand RR, there's uh, you know we've got you know top of the line Brembo brakes on both of these models they're absolutely just really good, um, very progressive. In other words, you don't have this sharp initial initial bite, but as you add in strength at the levers, there's
1: plenty there. then
0: there's plenty more, and they can bring the bikes down in a hurry with plenty of feel. So really, just there's nothing more to be said. Top of the line. So overall. Your riding impression of the Brutale 800 RC, what is
1: it? I'm glad I fell in love with it because then I took the challenge of riding it and the more I ride it, the more I love it. <laughs> if that makes sense.
0: You know, that's funny. That pretty much sums up me with the 1,000 RR. I mean, I don't have, you know, 30 grand lying around, um, but man, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, I wonder if I could. I wonder if there's a way despite the riding position, which really was pretty brutal. For you? For me. But despite that, I'm like, how can I buy this bike? Because I would,
1: you would ride it where it should be ridden. You don't poodle around town on that sort of thing. So once right. you're, you're riding the canyons and taking yeah. twisties as you plan to have a nice bike ride, then, then you'll love
0: it. I absolutely love it. The engine, the motor, the handling, the suspension, everything on it is feels so tight and so together it's it's like the you know it's like listening to a a song from dire straits everything (laughs) on it is absolutely is perfect it's musically perfect it's so tight it's fantastic what a spectacular pair of motorcycles
1: yes definitely motorcycle art as well the attention that i get on that bike is amazing
0: Associate Editor Neil Wyan brings us our snippet this week. Lately, he's been trying out the Senna Impulse Modular Helmet with a built-in comm system, and he gives us his thoughts on that.
2: I really like modular to start with. Uh, I like the fact that I can, if it's a hot day, I can open it at a stoplight, or when I get to a gas station, I can open it and talk to people and I don't have to take it off. Uh, so that, that leads me to the, to the modulars to start with, uh, then, uh, I normally ride with the, uh, with the facial open and, uh, but I, I like the fact that I have the chin bar uh, for, for the safety, safety feature and, um, they're getting lighter and lighter And Senna's Senna's done a really good job on this one. I don't remember exactly what the weight is, but I didn't feel it at all. I just went for a ride on Saturday. And uh, it was uh, 471 miles, a total of about 11 hours. I think 10 had had my head in the helmet. Never felt it. Never felt the weight, uh, anything. Uh, This particular helmet is very quiet Uh, as, it, except one small spot on it, which is kind of interesting, uh, where the, uh, uh, the control for the drop-down shield, uh, the little slot that that uh, slides in actually um, uh, can catch air if you're standing up over 50 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour, it, you can hear it because the helmet's so quiet. That you can actually hear the air that's being caught in in that little slot that the uh the drop down slider uh slides wow. in wow uh, but, uh, i love the visibility of the modular uh this this particular one uh as most uh good helmets are have have very wide eye ports uh so when you do a head check in either direction you see what you expect to see, and you don't have any any uh, anything blocking you. Uh, this one also uh, comes with a pin lock, uh, and uh, which is which is very nice, especially up here in the Pacific Northwest, where there's a lot of humidity and it rains a lot. Um, and also, I, I like the fact that it's got a huge uh, vent in the front for warm air, and, and the air basically blows right up. And I feel it hitting my forehead, which is nice on a warm day because uh, my nose doesn't get, doesn't get hot, but my forehead, you know, can get sweaty and the, uh, the airflow goes straight up to here. So that's, that's a nice feature. Um, also, very interesting thing about the, the way Senna made the combs was it's exactly the angle where your hand reaches when you got the helmet on and you put your finger up to reach, you don't have to twist your fingers around or your wrist around to get the buttons because it's exactly in line when you put your finger up here, it's exactly the place, um, exactly the angle where your index finger would go. So very convenient uh, not have to twist the way the, the ones when you, when you put them on the helmet, stick-ons, you have to twist your, finger, your hand Twist it around to reach the buttons and this is exactly in line with with the ergonomics of, uh, of a human hand
0: how do the comms work with it because they're sort of integrated so does it is it different from sort of uh, you know the normal add-on intercoms that we all use
2: no I, I mean I'm very familiar with with Santa comms I, I really like them especially the new mesh uh, I really enjoy working with that because it just so well, uh, you don't even you don't even have to do anything, and you're automatically connected to people. Uh, you just turn it on, and because wow. this has such good um, voice control, you can just say uh, "Senna," "Hey Senna," "Mesh on," and it turns it on. Uh, and uh, so you don't even have to press press the buttons on this thing. the the voice The voice control is so good that you really there's the only time you need to press a button is if you're changing uh, group numbers. Uh, but if you're just on group uh, group zero when it starts up, uh, the the comms are comms are great. Uh, if you do want to use the button, it's a different shape uh, than the rest. Uh, it's really just plus and minus uh, for volume. But you can say, "Hey, send a volume up." "Hey, send a volume down." You don't even need to use the buttons, but the comms. I use the mesh. Uh, it works great. It, it has good distance. Um, I consider distances in my experience to be uh, as far as you can see somebody <laughs> is sure. how it works. Uh, right. You know, if you're on, especially if you're on the freeway, uh, you know, and you start spreading out uh, as you go down the, uh, uh, it, if, if you can see somebody in your rearview mirror, you can still talk to them, uh, and. Uh, you know, if you're if you're in twisties and trees, uh, as long as you're fairly close, you, you know the the comms work well. Santa Sena has good distance that way. Uh, but yeah. if, you, if there's a mountain blocking you, if, you know right. you're going to lose lose the comms. How
0: about how about volume? Uh, you know, especially off road, is there is there enough volume at speed, or you know, if oh, you're yeah. self, uh, making a lot of noise, so you well, can definitely hear clearly.
2: The helmet itself is quiet. I mean, even standing right. up because uh, I'm a stander, and, you know, on the 10 uh, uh, Tenere 700, uh, you know, I've got steg pegs on it that support the back of my legs and uh, I've got a wind deflector. And between those, I can actually stand 70 miles an hour on the freeway and wow. standing okay. up my, you know, the full helmets in the wind and uh, um, I can hear the music clearly. In fact, they've got incredible speakers in here the harman kardon that they've uh paired with uh the the speakers i i actually have from time to time put this helmet on and listen to music while i was typing my reviews because the music (laughs) is just so great in this helmet wow yeah i mean it's it the the speakers are that good and it's since it's a quiet helmet uh and it also has the ability to adjust the sound level of the music and also the the, communi- the comms from uh, the GPS and so on uh, with wind noise. It's, it can listen for wind noise and uh, and automatically change the uh, the volume of the speakers. But I wow. found I keep the volume I keep the volume on this helmet way lower. Than I've ever kept before. I, I used to get warnings from my iPhone saying "You're too loud," "You're too loud," "You're too loud," "You're going to destroy your hearing," and uh, I have got never gotten that since I've been using this uh, Sennheiser because I don't need to turn up the volume. It's just that.
0: that so- that's impressive. Yeah. And anything yeah, think, that anything that you didn't like, or anything that you could uh, could see improving, or or are you uh, pretty good.
2: I wish we could figure out a way to put a peak on it for off-road riding and uh, so, and uh, you know turn turn it into a uh, adventure helmet, but short of that, um, it the uh, the the shield has only two detents, cracked, and then all the way up. Okay, so I normally ride with it all the way up. And it's a very strong detent, so if wind blows or something, it's not going to blow it back down. Uh, and I find uh, there are occasions when when I would like to have just some gradation in there, but it's it's a very small thing in relation to uh, the rest of the helmet to have okay. that. Okay, and uh, it's the uh, the chin strap uh, is a uh, Mechanical device, you know, it's it's like a ratchet system. It's not something that I'm accustomed to. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm accustomed to D-rings, and you know, so I can do those. But no. since this can't be done with one hand, uh, it takes two hands anyway. I don't know why they would they would go the ratchet, but I guess so that you can adjust it if your chin gets a little thicker after lunch or something. Uh, but the only problem with having a ratchet is that when I hang the helmet off of my lock, there's no D-ring to hang it off of. Okay. So, so I have to find the uh, the end piece that has a little sewn loop on it and put that in there. So it takes extra time to hang the helmet. That's it. Everything oh. else, quiet, it's comfortable, it's uh, Airflow is great. Visibility is great. The sound level and the sound is magnificent from the Harman Kardon speakers. So, uh, overall, I really enjoy this helmet.
0: In our second feature segment, editor at large Neil Bailey chats with legendary motor journalist Matt Oxley. Matt's incredible MotoGP reporting resume is made even more credible by his own seriously accomplished racing pedigree. Actually, he's won at the club and the endurance levels, and he's competed and won at the Isle of Man TT as well. During his long journalism career, he's got to know legends like Mick Doohan, Kenny Roberts, Valentino Rossi, and even older generation writers like Gary Nixon. They've all been written about by Matt. So if you're interested in what it's like to be a moto journalist and a career MotoGP guy, then Matt will fill in the blanks. For those of you with a sensitive disposition i should warn you that there's some salty language in this chat so be a little careful
3: i'm nearly 50 years on bikes now (laughs) which is just ridiculous but it's kind of amazing i always think in historical terms so i think of 50 years as half a century it sounds more much more impressive doesn't it you know yeah um so uh I kind of grew up in Wales and in the con- in in Hampshire. And then and then we moved to London for a bit and then back to Hampshire with my parents split up and um living with my mum and my brother in my granny's house. And uh basically it was what it would be being about 74, or something like that, I suppose. My brother was at college and, and he needed it was impossible for him to get to this little village. From this little village we were in in hampshire to guildford to his to his tech in guildford so he asked my mum can i have a bike motorbike you know and we didn't have any money so my mum said to my her mum can you buy julian a motorbike so granny did little honda cb125s and i was like you know and julian was just instantly besotted that was his life boom gone you know <laughs> and um <laughs> And then, you know, I was obviously already, I want one, I want one, I want one. But I had to, I had to wait two years to get mine. And my granny, you know, she bought him a CB125S. I mean, it, these are not, it's pretty much like a, well, it's a little 125 single four-stroke air-cooled.
4: I had a SL125. So yours was the pushrod one, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Metallic green, you know, with a, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, I just, I, was, I saw one. Up for sale, sort of. uh, I mean, I'm not kind of sentimental. Well, I'm sentimental, but not so much that I want to spend money on being sentimental. They get people (laughs) who, who buy their their first bike or whatever, you know. Um. So I got mine in summer of '76, and so we, you know, and then my brother, you know, we were both maniacs on the road. I mean, absolute fucking maniacs and you know always getting into trouble I was always crashing not not into cars but going around corners too fast you know trying to go you know we we wanted to be racers so then my brother started racing
4: what was interesting in those days were there was all these real great unknowns like tire pressure and adhesion and grip
3: oh, we had no idea about anything I mean no idea well I mean I suppose you know we kind of knew how to look after our bikes basically and we, and we weren't complete idiots i mean we knew how to pump up our tires and what pressures they used to be but i mean it wasn't sort of something yeah we were just maniacs we were just hooligans you know just careering around the country lanes you know we were going to start a a little racing club on the country lanes with about five of us we're going to um we got the road from Crondall to farnham and we were going to have started like 5 a.m one summer morning and have other mates kind of on the blind corners signaling if there were car cars coming so we could just go absolutely apeshit you know (laughs) of course it never happened but but I mean you know the reason my brother started racing was because he wanted to race and and then I started racing two years after him you know but we were both completely fucking skint you know I mean I I was kind of using patterned pistons in my RD 400 by which I'd got by then and
4: what were you doing to earn money at that point
3: I was a dispatch rider and then I was a printer I was a a dispatch rider for this this company that did origination print origination and printing and then I started printing for them which I actually really enjoyed actually um so I was only like 25 pounds a week you know and I and I started going racing which isn't a lot even now you know if you convert it you know so um yeah i bought an RD400 um you know secondhand one in in a bit of a state and kind of converted that for racing and couldn't really afford to go racing. So I had to kind of delay it. And and um, yeah, I mean, just finding that I think it was six quid to enter a race or something like that, you know, so that's, you know, I, you know, my mum my made us pay rent and stuff. She didn't fuck about, you know, she was skint. So, so, you know, I didn't have a lot of money left to go racing. Uh, my brother was successful immediately. I think he was winning races in his novice jacket on an, he had an RD 350, you know, the kind of model that preceded the um, RD 400s. And he was really fast.
4: So he didn't
3: even have disc brakes, right? No, I had it. I think it was the last model, so it had a disc disc brake. The last three fifty, yeah. And he was immediately successful, kind of. You know, I was, I, I wasn't racing then. I was like, oh my god, you know, I, if he can do that, I know I can do it, you know. And I kind of took a bit longer to get up to speed, um, for various reasons. Uh, yeah, and and that was it. So I, I had my first race in the summer of '79. You know, I was using my road bike to. To race on you know it was, it was both you know it was my I went to work on it on Monday and to, you know taped up the headlights and put racing plates on it at the weekend I mean it was that basic but it was fantastic I mean just absolutely fantastic I mean it's that use it that kind of age when kind of nothing can stop you you know you know what you want to do and you just do it you know there's nothing going to stop you I mean I never robbed a bank or stole any bikes or anything bad like that but I think I probably would have been prepared to because you know you just get completely obsessed you know and, and and it's well it you know it's a drug I mean it's a cliche but it's a fucking drug you know I mean adrenaline is adrenaline is the greatest drug known to mankind all the others are just trying to kind of you know sort of um uh, emulate,
4: it, right? emulate
3: that feeling of, of right, just right. Well, you know of just absolute high you know
4: yeah i think for people who don't get that high they don't understand do they 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 get it i mean it just makes all the other drugs look a bit grubby and dirty really
3: yeah well it's it's totally pure i mean you know if you could bottle it i mean it's amazing really that well i mean you can you, you, you can get it can't you i mean they, that's what they use on people when they get when they have her- heroin ods isn't it they give them a huge shot of adrenaline isn't it so so presumably you can um i mean like anything you can you can synthesize it yeah so yeah why can't we buy adrenaline (laughs) why can't we go down to the chemists and and buy some adrenaline
4: we wouldn't have to get a bike out we could just go to the medicine cabinet get a quick shot
3: (laughs) before we started this we i was was just after the we am i allowed to say we did this just after the goodwood festival of speeds i was riding this Old Kevin Schwantz five hundred and um, you know, it's just a mile up the hill and then a roll back down the hill. But even that is just like whoa, you know. You just I, I went for about had to go for about twenty five pisses before I went rode the bike each time, which is just like going racing again. You know, you just you're, you all these things are kicking in. You know, with adrenaline and, and your bladders trying to just like get rid of you. Know, you know what I mean? Because because um, <laughs> your but your body's preparing for combat basically. You know.
4: Did you ever ride Schwantz's bike in a test?
3: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the early nineties, I kind of, we were lucky. I was just so lucky, man. I mean, you know, just to ride, you know, Doohan's Doohan's 500s, Rainey's bikes. Well, ish, you know, ish. Ish.
4: (laughs) Anger for you, right?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Anger for me. Yeah. Not anger for Kevin. He was on a different level. Yeah. And um, so it was uh, Goodwood was his first proper MotoGP Goodwood. So, you know, lots of the old guys there. Like Duan and Schwantz and Agro Gardner and was there, and Gardner and Stoner, and and, and then Brad Binder, Pega Bagnaya, and there wasn't he? Yeah, Paul Espargaro, Miguel Oliveira. So, um, yeah, it was just fantastic, yeah, really cool,
4: really, really great that the modern GP stars mingling with the previous stars. Yeah, cool.
3: it was something pretty special, really. I mean, really, really special. I mean, it's just like a a living breathing museum rolling roaring museum you know i mean wow i mean just just um to have all those to have all those um bikes there it was just fantastic and, and just <laughs> silly things like coming back at the end of the run you know you have to the great thing about goodwood is it's just fucking chaos it's complete chaos there's people everywhere there's bikes everywhere there's cars everywhere there's cars and bikes trying to get through the crowd and <laughs> and then you, you're just kind of riding along probably only doing 15 20 miles an hour trying to get through the crowd and, right. and you're just going ming, 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 and you're just roaring up to people and, and then you know all these people just jumping out of the way you know and and i can remember that being in paddocks i mean you don't see a motorbike in a grand prix paddock anymore they're all in the pits you know um but i remember really loving that about being in paddocks that you'd be walking along and then somebody come and jump start a bike behind you and you jump out your skin you know and, and i, I love yeah, I mean what I really like about racing and, and, and life, you know, my life in general is kind of causing a bit of chaos, you know. I mean, I would say nice chaos, not bad chaos, good chaos, not bad. I'm um, beautiful chaos. I love it, you know, I love a bit of chaos. because um, it's just funny.
4: So you guys so he's on a 350 and you're on the four hundred.
3: Yeah. My and my brother was he was working for a bike shop and um and we had another mate nearby who had an RD four hundred. So we used to rent a transit van every weekend, well not every every few weekends and Um, three bikes in the back and then we'd sleep in the van nose to tail uh, uh, nose to toe whatever it is um, in the back of the van you know get woken up by like five in the morning when the condensation started dripping down onto you from the roof of the van and stuff like that and
4: well the glamour um,
3: yeah yeah no it was it was just so you know just so pikey it was very I mean if I'm allowed to use that word it was very pikey which I mean we were just as as basic as you could be, and and I kind of loved it as well because obviously I'm middle class. I went to posh school and all that kind of stuff, which I hated. And motorbike racing is generally a very working class thing, which is, I think one reason why I loved it so much. I didn't really like hanging out with like posh people, you know. And um, I just just loved all the people in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know they they accepted me even though I was kind of you know, you know they were all kind of steel erectors, miners. Uh, you know mechanics and all that kind of stuff I mean a lot of very hard people you know but at club at club level it's there's a lot of camaraderie you know you're all just having a laugh together and then you go up to the next level national level and I it's very different everybody's just trying to stab each other in the back because by that time you're kind of you know you're on the you know you're on the ladder trying to make it all the way and and you're racing for money as well and and just it just gets nasty you know and you've just got to man up and and do this and be nasty as well you know which i didn't find particularly easy i wanted just to have a laugh that's what racing was to me you know
4: so where did you go after the rd 400 then did you were you racing that when you moved up a class or
3: yeah no I, i kind of well like everyone else in the world i went out in february 1981 and bought myself an rd 250 lc you know um Went to my bank manager because I didn't again didn't have any money. I think it was twelve hundred quid. Which I mean, was, it was a lot of
4: money in those days. Yeah,
3: yeah, it was. Um, but you, you, you had to have one because um, they instantly made everything else completely hopeless. You know. Um, so I went to the bank manager. Said I need a loan for a road bike because my old bikes you know keeps breaking down on the rate of work which obviously isn't very good i might <laughs> lose my job and he was like of course, course you know in the days when you went had to go and have a meeting with your bloody bank manager to get
4: money right, you know. right. <laughs> it wasn't all online in those days right no
3: no so i got the money and and off i went you know and by then i was eh, but i got a job but i got my first job as a motor on a motorbike magazine the biker magazine in london
4: oh so mcn wasn't your first one
3: no no i went from the biker which was a uh, a kind of magazine which only lasted about three or four years launched at the top of the Barry Sheen kind of boom and, and went bust in br- 83? 83 83 because obviously big, in, big recession in Britain in the early 1980s everything was going bust so th- then I went from there to I was it 82? I think that went bust, and I went from there to Motorcycle Weekly, which then went bust about a year later.
4: There's a pattern developing here, <laughs> yeah, so
3: people started calling me the Albatross, you know, um, just bringing death and destruction to everything. And then, and then after that, I went to MCN, and that was 83, I think. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been a motorbike journalist for 40, uh, 43 years. I mean, it's
4: ridiculous. Well, I mean, really. I I can still remember walking into the News agents in preston and painting where i lived and getting the mcm when you were working for them yeah in the yeah 80s. i mean we used to go in every wednesday that was you had yeah. to go get your MCM. I mean, no
3: absolutely crazy. yeah yeah i mean i can remember when i was very first my first year on bikes was 76 and going up to where my dad lived in north wales and uh, riding up there with mates on our bikes and stuff and um and it was when sheen won the title his first title at the at swedish grand prix we didn't know until the wednesday after went went got your motorcycle news and and your motorcycle weekly and and there you, and there it all was you know um i mean wow you know you kind of had to wait you had to wait for your fun in those days you know it wasn't all just like bang 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 you know you weren't just kind of sort of um, a tidal wave of info constantly you know
4: well, now you have to stay. You have to stay off social media's before you watch the race, so you don't find out what happened before you. Exactly. Before you've exactly. Seen yeah. It. Yeah.
3: It's kind of <laughs> completely changed. Yeah. Completely changed. But yeah. Uh, so, uh, well, I, I, you know, I had a good year eighty-two on the LC. I, I won like forty-one races, including twenty-eight in a row, which was pretty ridiculous. let's.
4: How many people were in the field? In the, I mean, how oh, many-
3: absolutely packed. I mean, you know, club racing. I mean, although there was this recession going on, the 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 LC kind of cult. I mean, you know, there were just. I mean, every grid was full. You know, you'd be reserves if you if you if you didn't get your entries in in time, you you wouldn't even get a ride. You know, mm. it was um, you know, because it was cheap racing, man. I mean, you could, you know, on a, on LC, even when I was going good on it in eighty two, you 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 change the rear tire halfway through the season you know and you're probably doing you're probably doing you know 100 races on the bloody thing or 70 races yeah, during, yeah, the, during yeah. the year i mean they're all only six laps or whatever but nonetheless and, and you change the front it wasn't tire. Like you
1: were changing
4: tires every race
3: no you wouldn't even change the front tire all season it would last you the whole bloody year and you change rings in the you know piston rings in the bike halfway through the season and that was about it yeah and, and i love that because i'm a pretty shit mechanic and i'm lazy as well I like riding bikes. That's what I like doing, you know. Um, yeah, you don't
4: really work out all the time.
3: Yeah, I kind of, you know, as soon as in '83, I went up to like 250 GP level in nationals, you know, with a Wadden Rotax, which is a horrible thing. And and that needed a bloody engineer, not even a mechanic to look after it. So, you know, I straight, up, straight away started struggling. I had some reasonable rides on it. And, um, but I started to hate racing because it was costing me too much money. You know, I wasn't earning anything out of it. And I'd, when I first went up to London, I'd moved in with Howard Lees and Dave Chisholm and Linda Griffiths of Team Bike. And, you know, that kind of changed my life. Um,
4: How did you meet Howard?
3: Uh, he, 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 he was racing at, at Bemsey, at which was the, the, the club that I use most of the time. And, and my brother knew him and said, oh, they've got a bedroom free in, in their house in Ealing, West London. And I was like, oh, cool. So I moved in there without knowing that it would completely change my life, really it was just one of those random events so in 83 they were saying do you want to because they just started endurance racing and Howard was a fucking genius you know he was a pretty good rider but he was a much better engineer Mm. and um and Dave Chisman was riding for them as well and then he kind of stopped because he you know he he wasn't so like super fast he was fast but he kind of didn't want to you know I think it got a bit too much for him so they were the kind of backbone of the team and and then we went off endurance racing, so you know, Le Mans 24 Hours, Spa 24 Hour, Bol 24 Hours, Suzuka 8 Hours, all that kind of stuff. So,
4: who were you working for? Were you working for M C N or?
3: Yeah, I was working for M C N by then. So, so you're going from like club racing and national racing around Donington and Alton to kind of 24 hour racing through in all these lo- exotic locations, and it was just, yeah, it was just again, it was just being you're just being carried along on a wave
2: mm. of, of
3: which you. It's not particularly of your making. I mean, you're riding, but then people are saying, "Oh, come and do this," and you're like, "Yeah, sure," you know. And and it just kind of happened. Always, I never have had any plan, you know. But the thing mm. about Team Bike was that they 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 wouldn't even let me near the bike, you know, because <laughs> like I say, I was a shit mechanic.
4: Were they a magazine or were they just a race? Well, that was
3: bike. That was Bike Magazine. So it was like, which was I think already the biggest selling bike mag in Britain, um, owned by the same company that owned most of the news. So there wasn't a big sort of um,
4: clash there. There was no, yeah.
3: And, and and they and they basically it was Howard's idea, knowing people on the magazine through yeah, drunken nights in pubs in in London, um, who who just like thought, well, yeah, if we can get something together with this magazine, we'll be able to blag loads of stuff for free because you have got guaranteed publicity, you know. And it just went off from there. And I mean, they were basically then. Then we did a deal with Townsend Tourism, which is now P&O, so to put bikes on ferries because it's just free money for ferry companies because all the bikes just get stuffed wherever the cars can't fit you know what i mean and um basically the team took took a chunk of that money that's how the team was financed and it went on like that for nearly <laughs> for nearly 10 years until the yeah. publishers realized that we were getting a cut they didn't know they went fucking mental and 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 decided they'd take the cut themselves and that, that was the end of the team bastards yeah there you but go.
4: The, i think just to go sideways a little bit here so that time period you know which a lot of people probably wouldn't realize today it was a really huge shift in the way motorcycles were being represented to the public i mean we went from motorcycle magazines being like a, a stuffy manual to lifestyle
1: and yeah.
2: all
4: this stuff happened wasn't schiller did fast bikes they were pulling us all over yeah. Europe, making vhs tapes of their mad exploits you guys were racing i mean this was a Probably the most pivotal shift in the way motorcycle stories are being received by the public. I mean, it was like a frontier.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you look back, looking back now, you can kind of see it. But then, obviously, you you didn't see it because you were just you were just doing what you wanted to do. You know, there was no. Um, but I can remember when I was writing my first road test, they were all kind of pretty dry. I mean, occasionally somebody sent me some old biker magazines, and they're pretty dry. Yeah, you know,
4: Mark Williams was bombing around London on his Jota, and yeah, you know, yeah. We talked about this the other day. He got busted on some heroin deal in the states, didn't he? No,
3: he was he was he was going out with a girl that was um uh I think she was kind of yeah, she it was basically a cocaine thing. Oh, cocaine. And and, and yeah, and and he I think and he got busted either coming into or leaving the states with like a hundred grand on him. <laughs> so he he he's he did like 5 6 years in a State Penitentiary in the States, man.
4: Jeez. Is that right? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Because yeah. I remember, I remember when he washed up back in England at one point, and he was writing a column for a small magazine about riding a K seventy five three cylinder. And I thought, you know what, it's over. BMW. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: well, that's that's what life does to you. You know, you're you're all mad and charging around, and um, and then suddenly you're not. I ride a T-Max scooter now because I live in London and I do a lot of airport runs going to MotoGP races so it's just perfect you know you know you can f- rock up to the departure lounge stick your helmet under the seat stick your waterproofs in the in the in the um in the top box and off you go but I borrowed a, a BMW S1000XR which is a kind of upright version of the S1000R Superbike double R Superbike and I spent the week on that <laughs> and I was I kind of really sad to give it back but my God, my license was happy, I think. You know, I just I still I still can't help but misbehave on a motorbike. I mean, and I don't do idiotic stuff. Well, I don't think it's idiotic. And um and I don't, you know, yeah, I'm not a maniac anymore, but I kind of I like to push on, you know. Um and it's just it's just something that's a part of you, basically,
4: you know. Well, England's changed so much with all these speed cameras. I I I took, a, I took a friend of mine's dad on a tour of devon and cornwall and thankfully the the car rental and everything was in his name and his <laughs> credit card because all these tickets showed up in the mail yeah <laughs> like where did they come from
3: there's a lot of cameras around i mean at least here they are they have to make them yellow so once you know generally what i do now before i go to a country that i don't know what the speed cameras are like i just you know check check republic speed cameras and then you get images of them and you see what they're like oh, okay i don't know, know what to look out for now yeah. uh, but the, the things i hate which they use in britain an awful lot now is average speed cameras so you can't you know you can't dodge between the kind of from one camera to the next you just uh, i mean when i land at heat you know without boring you too much about my heat my airport runs but i've always fly from heathrow and all the way back on the m4 and then all the way around the north circle to my house it's just fucking average speed cameras 40 miles an hour it's like oh my God drives wow. you insane. <laughs> it drives me insane anyway. Yeah,
4: because I mean yeah, but there you as
3: go. I mean it's just. Up, didn't have any uh, of that. I think sorry.
4: As kids growing up, we didn't have any of that. No, just, no I mean place.
3: basically you'd get chased by the cops. You know, I, I got I did a few runners from the cops in my time, which was kind of the next best thing to racing, really.
4: <laughs>
3: you kind of you once you knew they were after you and you thought, well, they haven't got close enough to see my plate. Right. obviously they didn't have cameras or anything then you know you think right, right well, I'm o- I'm off you know and, and and you go into like pretty much full racer mode you know just you knew you they were no, going to catch you no holes bars well you you don't know the guy might be a racer himself you know so so but yeah I mean it's certainly if they're in a car which they usually were that there's no way they're going to catch you you know Yeah, 1300 escort wasn't gonna do yeah, it. <laughs> no, exactly I used to really enjoy those actually I mean not particularly at the time but kind of looking back you know it's funny It was all part of the, you know, I'm, I I mean, I went, because I went to a private school, public school, which my parents didn't play for, by the way, because they were skint, money came from somewhere else. Um, You know, I think my whole life pretty much has been rebellion against that, because I hated it so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, you know, I'm a a bit of a punk, basically. Obviously, I was kind of around when punk, I was 16, 17 when punk was happening. So that's my kind of creed, I suppose, just, fuck you basically
4: yeah well it was a big movement and yeah. so so you did 10 years with the endurance racing team yep
3: yeah, yeah i did 23 24 hours in that time yeah which is wow. quite a lot of 24 hours um, but you also yes.
4: got into you also got into uh, racing at the Isle of man as well yeah which also
3: happened by chance basically when i was at mcn in 1984 so i've been there sort of six months or something like that um the the production allman production tt had run from the 60s to the mid 70s and then been dropped and then in 84 they brought it back and the editor said that an mcn was sponsoring it you know road bikes blah 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 and the editor said to me uh do you want to do the tt for us um and i was like no way too dangerous you know i'm still crashing too much i'll die basically and and then i went away and thought about it and and I went back to him and said, "So if I go over there, which is like two weeks at least, how many stories do I have to write?" He said, "Just a story about you doing the TT." And I was like, "One story, two weeks, I'm on." <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so basically, I, the only reason I went there was kind of for a holiday, really. Right, right. You know, and and, and then I went ro- drove round. I had been once before um, when I was at the biker, but um, when I was just hooting around and 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 I rode around the track in 84 and just thought oh this is just way too dangerous this is just way Mm -hmm. too dangerous Mm -hmm. this is terrifying because obviously you're going around at slow speed and you can see all the walls and and everything and it looks really do you think you imagine yourself if I lose the front here I'm dead you know 100% um so I just thought this too so I was just going I decided well I can't just get I can't just pack it in without having ridden it you know on closed roads I'll just do one lap of practice and come back and say nah it's not for me and the first practice was morning practice. Which started at 4 30 a.m so the sun's just coming up and you're in at the top of glen Country road in your novice jacket and your nylon novice jacket over your leathers and um it's pretty cold and off you go down <laughs> down Bray hill and off you go and i just had the best time ever you know um <laughs> and i was just like wow this is just the best thing i've ever done you know you're just going through little villages at flat out in top gear which on a rg 250 wasn't an awful lot probably 120 125 miles an hour but 130 maybe I don't know but anyway I mean fast enough you know fast enough to kill yourself um and I just thought this is the best thing ever you know because I would, it, basically I was doing in relative safety what i had been doing when I it, it, when I was in a teenager when I was a teenager kind of careering around the roads of Hampshire you know so yeah I just fell in love with it totally um yeah and you know and, and that lasted for five or six years and then suddenly the the spell went as quickly as it it kind of come you know I just suddenly was like had a couple of big scares in 89 a couple of people I know got killed friends you know and I just thought I've had enough of this you know
4: but you ended up with a lap record and some wins and uh, quite the one one
3: win in 85 I won it on honda ns250r and and then the following year was the first year of the yamaha tzr 250
4: was that the reverse cylinder
3: v no no it was just a parallel twin then lovely okay. little bike lovely little bike and and the kind of the rate of the 80s were a real the rate of improvement in performance of motorcycles during the 80s especially sports bike it was the kind of age it was the decade of the sports bike you know i mean it you think about it, You started off with like a GS-1000 and ended with the RC-30, you know, I mean... In 10 years. Yeah, 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 well, less than. I mean, the RC-30 was 88 or 89, so, I mean, just unreal. Yeah. Unreal. I mean, there's never been a decade where there's been that much improvement. You know, once you got the Fireblade in 92, it's kind of, you know...
4: Incremental since then. Exactly, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, But the TZR 250 in 86, yeah, I got the first 100-mile-an-hour lap on a 250 then which you know with 45 horsepower (laughs) it's kind of i mean you're flat out a lot of the way but not not all of it (laughs) um and and was leading the race and and then got caught up with some 750s because i used to start up start them like a couple of minutes before us to catch up the slow guys and got slowed up by them and lost the lead and crashed because i was so fucking angry (laughs) got back on and finished third um yeah and then the other three years weren't so good but you know there was sort of third or third or fourth or whatever but um Yeah. I mean, I enjoy, I enjoyed it and I still, I, I, you know, I hated it for a long time after all those people have been killed in 89, my last year. And, and it's a kind of love, hate thing. Now I kind of decided now, well, it's a philosophical thing. You know, you, if you race at the TT, you know, a hundred percent, what you're letting yourself in for, you know, it's like climbing Everest. You don't climb Everest without knowing what you're doing, you know, or what what you're in for. Um, And if you want to do that and it's, and the other man will let you then why the fuck not i mean i know it's horrifically dangerous and a lot of people die and some of them leave children and wives and stuff like that which is the worst part um but i kind of think you know as an adult you own your own your own you own your own body you know you do what the fuck you like with it you know mm-hmm. um you know again coming back to that punk thing don't tell me what to do with, with my body you know um mm-hmm. so yeah i kind of th- philosophically i think i you know yeah, if you want to do it, do it. And 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 I love it. I you know I'm kind of watched it every year on the telly, you know. I don't go because I'm normally too busy with MotoGP, but um mm. but I love watching it on telly and just wow, you know. It, it gives me goosebumps just watching it now, you know. It makes you feel like you're back there again. You know, because there's I mean literally short circuits. Yeah, I mean like like I, said, I generally when I start talking about the TT I get goosebumps, you know. I don't I don't get goosebumps about talking about riding around Brands Hatch or you know.
1: It's, yeah, yeah, it's
3: kind of on another level. There's there's also almost something kind of spiritual about it, you know. Mm, it's, I guess mm. it's that you know the closer to that old cliche, the closer to death you are, the um, the, uh, the, the more alive you feel, you know. Um, and and you know, cliche it may be, but I'd, I'd say it is true, definitely. Mm, mm. You know that's that's why that's why people. Um, I think Steve McQueen, you know, he raced bikes and cars. He he came up with some great quotes. Um, great lines and and that, and that one racing his life everything else is waiting is bullshit because that's a line in a movie so it's you know I don't think it's his uh but he he he, he say races aren't courting death they're courting being alive you know <laughs> that's why you race not because you you, you want to risk dying you because you, you want to feel alive you know and it yeah certainly, makes, yeah certainly makes you feel alive you know wow you know everything and your whole body is just like buzzing you know
4: do you miss racing now
3: uh not really. I kind of no, I don't. Cause a a um it's a lot of fucking hassle. People have no idea how, how how much of a hassle it is. And also you get hurt. That's just inevitable. If 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 you could promise me that there's some new magic technology where, where every time you crash, there's a sensor and a and a kind of um what what are those things they call it? They put in cameras and fly around. It's a drone. You know, you had a drone attached to your back, you know, and it had you know whenever it felt you crashing it would just lift you 20 <laughs> 20 feet in the air and take you back to the paddock i'd i'd do it you know people say oh why don't you do classic racing bit of classic racing that's easy and it's like well a it isn't and b you can still crash at 100 miles an hour on a max norton or faster 120 miles an hour on a max norton and it might not be your fault you know it's, you might be riding yeah. quite sensibly and the gearbox locks up and down you go so you know or somebody rides into you or whatever so i just you know i, I hurt myself enough um so you know and i I like covering racing. I like writing about racing. I like, um, you know, I like I still like being involved, obviously.
4: So you came out of the TT 89. So you go into the 1990s, and you're working for MCM. When did you transition from doing the 24 hour racing and the TT to covering Motor MotoGP?
3: It was all a bit of a kind of, they were kind of all sort of, mi- it was a bit mixed up for a while in uh, 87. I, I, I edited performance bikes for a year. But then the start I didn't I'm not not very good at responsibility so I didn't really like being in charge of the magazine and you know I had fun but it was just too much hard work you know so I wanted to go what I wanted to do would be a GP reporter when it was you know it was Lawson and Gardner and all those kind of guys then Mm. um so I my first season was 88 and I didn't finish racing until early 91 I got hurt a lot more okay so there was, um, trend, there was a trend yeah yeah so those years when I was doing both were, were mental you know kind of mm-hmm. i come home swap suitcases and leave again you know or, or so wash my undies and leave again you know um but again you know late 20s it's not a problem is it you're just you're just on fire basically you know and right one, one, I mean I did a I remember and I was still doing some road testing for MCN so I remember one year Oh, no, that would have been a bit earlier. Yeah, doing doing a 24-hour test at, at Snetterton w- with no sleeping arrangements. We just slept on the cafe floor. You know, I mean, <laughs> just things were so basic back then. <laughs> and, then and, and then having to leave the 24-hour race like an hour early and then riding, I think I had an RD500LC at the time, racing down to... South London, where my uh, where team bike were based at Howard's house, and jumping in the van and going off to do the spa twenty four hours. So I did two twenty four hours in one, in one week, one on the kind of Monday Tuesday, and the other on Saturday Sunday. You know, but it was just <laughs> that's just what well, you did. You know, I mean, right. I was very bike fit because all I did was ride bikes. So I was either road right. testing or racing, just constantly. You know,
4: constant, right?
3: Yeah, 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 and 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 loving it. Yeah, just loving it. You know, just as deep in as you can go. Really, just awesome you know um and there's things like the suzuka i mean that i love 24 hour races i i'm kind of looking again you didn't think about it then but looking back now i talking about liking chaos you know i realize now that i did the two most stupid for, Well, two of the most stupid forms of racing if you like you know the isle of man tt and endurance racing i mean you're you know at boldoir you're doing 180 190 in the pitch dark down the down the straight and then you know you've got lights but they don't really work because one's pointed high and one's pointed low for braking and accelerating so when you're on the straight you can't really see where you're going um and and then down the Mistral straight where all the fans are down, you know there's they're all cooking their got barbecues going and cooking their merguez sausages and getting sloshed and 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 there'd just be a pole of smoke across the straight and like for one or two seconds you just couldn't see a fucking thing you know when they have the ball door there now they don't allow people to camp there but no one cared about that kind of stuff
4: there and it was
3: it was very da- you know 24 hour racing is kind of pretty dangerous because um for all kinds of reasons but i i loved i I loved those two kinds of races because they were both adventurous you know i kind of got a bit bored of short circuit racing you know you just go round and around and around and around and around and 20 minutes later, half an hour later, you're back where you started, you know, and you right, won or right. you finished second or you finished 10th or whatever, you know, and there you go. And you do it twice more at the weekend and that's it. You go home. But like it, you know, the TT is an adventure. I mean, absolute adventure. Every lap is an adventure. even. And, and 24 hours were adventures as well. I mean, just beautiful racing at sunset racing when the sun's coming up at the bowl door and the mountains behind the track, you know, Dawn coming across the mountains and, um, just beautiful you know and, and, and yeah just just special just really special you get a lot you know you, you don't really get so much, many memories from short circuits because you're so in the zone you know um, right you don't have the the time t- to look around See the yeah same. i think the tt you have to be more conscious i mean the ideal way to race is through your subconscious you know so you're not even thinking you're almost you're almost an automaton but the tt i think you have to be a bit more conscious because there's so much going on you know and uh and the same in endurance racing you know there's so much going on you know you're racing on tires that are fu- fucked or whatever and you, you're passing people all the time you know you've got you know who are going either a bit slower or a lot slower than you so you've really got to be you're not just going around clicking off the laps you know there's you know there's lots lots of situations maybe somebody's dropped some oil you know blah 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 maybe somebody's crashed i mean sort of funny things like the spa 24 hour There was a, a yamaha privateer team that was um uh racing with us and they crashed in the middle of the night and i came around just as the guy was getting his bike back onto the track and i could see oil leaking out of it and i was like okay i better better watch out for that next lap came around the next lap you know minute and a half later and um next corner after where he crashed there's three got bikes on the deck you know but i'm ready for it so i'm kind of you know the next corner there's another two bites on the deck. The next corner there's another three bites on the deck. The next corner there's another two bites on the deck. You know, because everybody's crashing on his oil. And um and I mean it's evil, but I was like, yee. <laughs> you know, because some <laughs> some of those bites might have been ahead of us. I don't know. But you know, that's just what you like right, when you're right, a racer. Right, yeah. You know, I mean, I could, you know, um yeah, I mean, as long as it was only flesh wounds, you don't really care, you know.
4: <laughs> yeah, there's no <laughs> no flesh, no
3: sympathy. Yeah. There's no sympathy, yeah.
4: Right. So you've hung all that up by the 90s so is that did you just then go full-time MotoGP GP yeah. after yeah. at that point
3: yeah so and I mean what a I mean my first season what a season to start that was when Kevin Schwantz and Wayne Rainey turned up to join Eddie Lawson um Wayne Gardner uh you know all the others and, and then in 89 do and and then, and then in 89 McDoan turned up so you had Doen, Schwantz Rainey Gardner Lawson I mean wow it was just um I mean, one, you know, one of the epic eras, those six mm-hmm. years that Schwantz and Rainey were racing each other until Rainey got hurt um, were just incredible. I mean, but I was kind of terrified of most of those guys, you know, because they were very tough people, you know, uh, all of them. And a, most of them a little bit redneck, either very redneck or a bit redneck. So they didn't, you know, and, and I, I didn't have the confidence that I kind of have now when dealing with kind of top riders. 'Cause you know, when you've been doing it for this is my 36th season, you kind of get used to it, you know. But then I was um they used to scare the shit out of me, to be honest. <laughs> um but you know, yeah, it was uh I was very lucky to be to start right there. I mean, wow, what a what a period, you know, and, and the the five hundreds.
4: You went on to write Dewan's book though, so you must have yeah. built your relationship with him.
3: Yeah, well, I I, I work with Duan every day at, r- at racetracks from the start of the 1990 season until till he finished because his Aussie PR guy, you know, back with communications like they were back then, you know, um, would ask me to speak to Duan every, as you speak to him every day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every race, um, go into his motorhome and sort of have a chat with him and uh, and then type up the, the quotes and send them to his PR guy in Australia. And Duan used to pay me, hundred dollars in cash for that.
4: <laughs> I hope the tax man's not listening.
3: Well, well, I, I did get into the into into trouble with the tax at the time, but I managed to get out of it. Um <laughs> and, and then Beattie turned up with the same PR guy and he was paying me a hundred dollars a week cash, which was sort of quite a bit of money back then. Yeah. And the the, the funny thing about Mick, I mean he, he's kind of terrified I mean I've I've always you know I, I appreciate guys and I top riders. I mean I love riding working with the guys who I think are the best riders in the world, I, you know, and uh, asking them how what about their techniques, how they ride, and so on, getting all that stuff. I just love that. Um, and doing you know it's a pretty scary guy. Um, certainly back then. I mean, he he didn't suffer fools gladly. If you asked him a stupid question, he'd just go for you, you know, but he he was also really nice. and um I think it was Mazzano ninety one when he, t- he won the race and and took the world championship lead for the first time. So a significant victory. And that was still in the time before press conferences and all that kind of stuff uh, after the race. So basically he'd win the race, ride the slowdown lap waving at the crowd and stop on the start finish, you know, and all his mechanics would come out to get the bike. And obviously he'd be immediately besieged by a, a sort of scrum of journalists and fans and so on. And And so you always had to make sure that you were there first kind of thing, you know. And um, I was sort of there with my notebook pre-tape you know, tape recorders, really. Um, that was all too complicated, so I'd just scribbled down, sort of, you know. And uh, the first thing he said, he kind of lifted up his visor and he went, oh, hi, Matt. He says, I, I owe you some dollars, don't I, for the last few races? <laughs> it's just like, what? You just... You just won a 500 Grand Prix and taken the, 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 the and that's literally the first thing he said when he stopped the bike, you know, <laughs> I, I was there, made sure I was there first. And you just think, wow. Yeah. Just, well, that was Mick, you know, he was just, he was just so cool. He was just, you know, very, I mean, not cool in it. I mean, cool in, 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 you know, cold blooded in, in, cause that's how he raced the way he did. You know, you, 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 if you get excited, you're generally not a good racer, you know.
4: Unbelievable. So how did the book come about with Mick?
3: Uh, late 90s, Haynes, you know, then, you know, a big publisher of motorsport books asked me to do the book. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't really want to write a book. That sounds like too much like hard work. And, and but then because I, you know, knew it pretty well and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, I said, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. So that was my first book came out in 99, I think. Um, and I kind of realized then that I quite quite like writing books, you know, because you're, you're much less hemmed in by, you know that oh can you write us a story about something it's 1200 words or 1500 words mm. you know or 1800 words which is about as much as you'll ever get you know so you have to really there's so much you want to say but but you can't you know whereas a book mm. you just let your brain go and you let you let your let your brain run free and was, was
4: make pretty receptive to doing the book yeah
3: no he was he was yeah so i'd you know i'd obviously and i'd been ghosting his columns for years you know so i I had tons you of You knew a lot about, about him. him. Tons of material about him or already. And then I yeah. um and then I spent some time with him after the ninety eight Australian Grand Prix up on Hamilton Island. In mm. um um yeah, so I went up and spent a few days with him there. Uh sort of just getting more stuff. Uh yeah, no, he he was pretty good. He was pretty good. And then obviously he got fucked up the next year and never raced again. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, but I mean what a remarkable rider you know and, and now he's a you know yeah. worth i don't know hundreds of millions because he's got a kind of um yeah he owns half of gold coast airport he he owned i mean he's a, you know he's got his own uh private jet business uh um, so he's just
4: gone into business now and yeah i mean he's a, he's
3: a he's a he's a he's a kind of does business the way he raced i think you know he's pretty yeah. pretty full on pretty full on but I saw him yesterday at the, at the Goodwood Festival of Speed and he's he, like I say he's a nice guy if he knows you and sort of trusts you he's a nice guy and um we were chatting about various things and as I was walking away he went oh Matt 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 I was like what and and he said oh I've got some some of my mates haven't turned up so I've got a load of passes if you if you want them you know if you've got some mates who need passes so you know he's a, he's a good guy but I wouldn't want to cross him right <laughs> I really uh, wouldn't want to cross him and you know I've seen him uh reduce a few journalists to kind of gibbering wrecks because he'll just, like I say, if 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 you ask a stupid question or, or even just something that he thinks is a stupid question, you know, he just goes for you. He doesn't hold back. <laughs> you just have a lot of fun. Interesting.
4: Well, so, I mean, after the Dune era, I mean, you were there first time really for probably one of the greatest things we'll ever see in MotoGP and that was the arrival of Valentino Rossi and you had a front row seat for the whole of that his career, which culminates in writing a book. And I think you know, in a conversation we had, you said that he's probably one of the few people in any sport that was bigger than the sport.
3: Yeah, no, I, I, I generally think that I mean, I think, you know, you know, you have, have friends or people you bump into and they say, well, yeah, people you bump into and they say, what do you do? And they say, oh, "I, you know, I'm a motorbike journalist. I work in murder GP." And they say, well, what's that? And you say, Valentina Rossi. And they say, oh, right. OK, you know, so sort needs of means nothing to them, but Valentina Rossi does. So, yeah, mm. he's bigger than the sport. Um, and at Goodwood yesterday, he, he was there in 2015. And when he did his kind of reception at the front of the house on the on the on the balcony at the front of the house with Lord March and all that, Um you know the place was packed you couldn't see a blade of grass uh yesterday they had all eight or nine motor gp riders they had there and the place was half empty you know what i mean so 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 um for for that sort of photo call you know when fans could also mm-hmm. Join mm-hmm. Yes, um, so, so yeah you know he's just a utter phenomenon you know the will there, you know he's he's like a Muhammad Ali or Diego Maradona, that kind of guy who who who's whose appeal is just goes far beyond the sport and whose attraction goes far beyond um his appeal as a sports person you know um and uh, there probably won't be another one like him in my lifetime, I would think I mean there might be you know might what, turn what up was your,
4: what was your first conscious moment that you realize rossi was here or you realize he was something
3: special. Sure. Um what well, do so he won his first grand prix he started grand prix in 96. Weirdly I first well not met him but saw him um in 1990 after the Italian grand prix that year I it was when minimoto had just started there was this new craze in Italy and I just thought I wanted to do a feature on it. So after the Italian grand prix me and a photographer David Goldman went to you know, Rimini and all around there, around Mazzano where there's all these little mini motor tracks. And, you know, we hired a few mini motors ourselves and raced around and, you know, you'd be there at like 11 at night and then all these kids come from the bar, they're all pissed, but they're all just putting on their helmet and gear and riding around and crashing into each other and laughing and it was fantastic. And then one one track we visited, there was quite late at night and um, I spotted his dad, Graziano Rossi. who was kind of one of my heroes in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And then he got hurt, you know, he's racing 255 on a Grand Prix. And um, I thought, bloody hell, that's Graziano Rossi. So I, you know, I'm not, don't normally do this kind of thing, but he was such a, a star of mine and, and, and I'd never met him or anything. So I just wanted to go over and just say, hi, uh, Graziano. I don't want to take up any of your time. But I just want to shake your hand and say, I thought you were awesome when you were racing, you know, and, and walk away, you know, basically. And um, so I went up and did that and, and I said, why are you here? And he sort of pointed into the darkness, this little thing, little boy going around the, around the course and said, he's my son. Valentino, I was like, oh, okay, and wandered off, never thinking more about it until '96 <laughs> when he turned up in Grand Prix, and then '97 was when I thought, wow, something's happening here. We were at Imola, and for the Imola Grand Prix, and he was still on one two fives then, and a load of fans had cut out his name in big in big letters. Each fan, Valentino, so however many fans that was, right, right, a letter right. of his name, Valentino Rossi. So it all spread out on this kind of mound. Um, across the start finish and you know he was already getting a lot of fans and and it was just yeah you and there were a lot of fans there you just said something and you just thought well something is happening here and then from there it just took off and then, and when I think already that year he'd done his um uh uh Max Biagi was going out I put that in in uh, inverted commas with um Naomi Campbell there's a story behind this that I better not put on tape because I'll probably get sued. Uh, <laughs> um I mean I really I would. Uh um unless I could prove it, which I couldn't. Um so Biaggi was going out with um Naomi Campbell and you know he wasn't really but that was the that was the idea of of what they were doing um to kind of up his up his you know cred or whatever. And Rossi and Biagi hated each other I mean very different people I mean I worked with Biagi and I really didn't like him It made my life hell for some years really not pleasant um so Rossi rode when he run one at Magello in 97 he rode around with a blow-up doll on the on, on his back on the pillion you know I uh, with with Claudia Schiffer written across it, it was obviously another another um supermodel super so i mean and sort of things like that you're like wow i mean what a great sense of humor i mean maybe it wasn't him that thought of it but it, that doesn't matter you know he he went with it and ran with it um and that was just hilarious i mean you know and then 1999 when he at, at um hereth when he won the 250 race and stopped on the on the cool down lap having the during bathroom. the and, and went into the um port you know and and that was just fantastic. I mean, you know, the whole place well, went just, quiet when he when he was what the fuck's going on? And then he comes out of the whole, I mean, Hareth back then was just insane. The whole place just goes bonkers. Cause obviously everybody's got it on T, you know, super screens around the track. And and you just think you can't you can't beat a stunt like that, you know. And obviously a no, lot of he other was, riders he was so unique,
4: wasn't it? Yeah, he?
3: a lot of other riders followed him with stunts, mm. but none of them ever got anywhere near what he did, you know um so yeah no I was so lucky to be there so from 96 to 2021 um so lucky to be there that whole time and and I did his um column for a while which was great fun because he was I mean the opposite of Mick Doohan. you know was whereas Mick Doohan was scary but you know I don't have a problem with that he's a motorbike racer he's meant to be scary you know <laughs> whereas Rossi was just you know super charming super um super nice super kind of metropolitan if you know what i mean you know whereas a lot of these aussies and and americans have been a bit redneck which is fine but just it's just a very different vibe you know um and he was always just a great pleasure to deal with but you could and i, I don't think i ever reached that point But you'd you know, be in debriefs or scrums or or pr events and he would you could see it, his face change when he'd had enough you know he'd be all charming and chatting and then basically his brain would go like, I've had enough of this. And and his face would just turn to this face of thunder, you know, which I could see, but I think a lot of people couldn't, you know, he just leave the guy alone. Yeah, Obviously he, you know, he became, I I, I love the way he's managed his fame though, you know, that basically he doesn't, you know, he lives on his estate in Tavulia and nobody ever sees him, you know, he doesn't go to, you know, movie premieres or dinners or events or anything like that very 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 rarely you know um and I really I think that's super cool you know he doesn't want to why why the fuck does he want to go to a movie premiere and be walking down the red carpet with a girlfriend waving at people you know I mean bullshit isn't it you know or go to some fancy champagne whatever he doesn't need it he's got He's got everything he needs, you know. He's got for his loads boys, of motorbikes. his
4: bikes, for his missus. Just,
3: no, exactly. But even back then he had everything he needed. He's got his, you know, he always kept the same friends. Um, you know, that's that's where he's happiest. So yeah, uh, and just what a great rider, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, I d I don't think that um I don't think he had the kind of the extreme skills that um Casey Stoner or Mark Marquez had or have. But he just had a way of just putting everything together and just doing everything better than everyone else.
4: What do you say? Doesn't have the extreme skills. How how do you mean? Well, I, I think he still rode a motorbike like
3: you ride a motorbike. You know, I mean, obviously, incredibly, incredibly fast. Whereas Stoner, you know, coming off dirt track, you know, had all these insane skills to control ways of controlling the bike in very weird ways and Marquez is obviously you know just tucking the front all the time rossi didn't do those kind of things but he just maxed everything out until he was just the perfect complete racer also well like all of these guys pretty much highly intelligent i mean here without a doubt he's the cleverest rider i've ever spoken to you know and, and that is a huge part of his success because that doesn't only help you on the track that as jb as crew chief used to say he's got this mental bandwidth to be riding on the limit absolutely but still thinking about strategy like trying to break up the group and do this do that do the other but but also off the track working in the garage um how to deal with the media how to control the media how to control other riders how to make sure he's got the right team the right people behind him etc 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 you know you don't only race on the track you race you know i think Duan said to me once he he used to think about racing 95 percent of the time even when he wasn't at the track yeah, <laughs> you know, you realize that these guys, you know, they don't just race and go home and have a laugh. You know, he's literally thinking about racing. Who, who am I going to race this weekend? What have I got to do to beat them? Where they're going to be strong? Where they're going to be weak? Blah blah, mm. blah 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 blah. You know, so they're, you know, I don't think he was easy to live with when he was a racer, especially when he was at races. You know, I, I think most riders are like that. Wives and girlfriends and so on. They, they deserve a lot of respect because fuck, they they just have to basically. You just become like a dog's body basically you know you just basically the, the you've got to let the racer do what he wants to do haven't you and you're just there to kind of pick up the pieces really
4: mm. but your relationship with rossi led to the book
3: yeah i um, after so i had done the done the column with him for a while and then in 2000 no so when he won the title in uh, 2001 um uh haynes said do you want to write a book about him so i went and said you know, can I write a book about you? And he said, yeah. And he was living again in inverted commas because he obviously got found out that it was a tax dodge uh, in London at the time. So I kind of had a bit of a couple of days with him in London. And obviously again, had all the, you know, all the stuff from the columns that I'd written for mm. him. Um, that came out in t- 2002. And I did another one in 2005. And then, and then another one a couple of years ago. So I've written three books about him. <laughs> I, I hate to think, well, I mean, it, it, you know, it's not going to be millions or anything, but it would be thousands, you know, of, of pounds that I've earned out of Valentino Rossi. And, every, you know, there's not a person in the paddock that hasn't earned money out of Valentino Rossi. Because while he was around, it kind of pulled the whole sport up. So even if you were mm-hmm. riding a motor three, you know, you still would have been getting a bounce off the fact that Rossi was there, you know. And so there was more money coming into the sport.
4: Um, I mean, there's been a lot of... Lot- there's a lot said about, you know, Rossi leads MotoGP. GP, is down. I mean, how do you feel Mojo GP is doing without him?
3: I mean, it's, it's you know, how much do you believe TV figures? I haven't really seen TV figures, but I think, I think they would, they, they, they've been down. I mean, I don't take an awful lot of interest in that kind of stuff. You know, I don't really, mm-hmm. I don't actually care how many people are into it really, you know, um, you know, I was there when Donington, when, when Doohan was around and winning everything and, there were like fifteen thousand people on a Sunday at Donington at the British Grand Prix in the late nineties, and you know that didn't concern me. I'm I'm there to speak to the riders, you know, and then write something. And you know, as long as I enjoy writing it and somebody wants to read it, job done for me. So I don't really take a lot of interest in that. I mean, I want the I want the races to be busy because you want to feel like something's happening that people are interested in. Um, so I think I think that's one of the reasons they brought brought in sprint races this year. Like, fuck, we need to do something to kind of increase TV revenue which is mm-hmm. what sprint races are all about i mean you know it's a business like any other big sport now people say oh it's a business nothing more now it's all about money well of course it is All sp- all sports are you know yeah, um yeah. you know rightly or wrongly there's good and bad in that um so but i mean this year at quite a few races we've had really good crowds you know um, although the, the, those were the races which i would say are kind of event races so saxon ring mm-hmm. le mans and Assen, where basically they're real biker races all of them basically everyone turns up and gets blotto for 3 4 days and 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 sets fires to things in the campsite and basically goes mad um and and goes and watches the racing on sunday you know yeah um, yeah. so i I, th- I think yeah it's i mean you know again people say oh it's motogp's going to be in real shit when he goes and i think it, it's obviously suffered of course it has um but again you know that's just the way it is isn't it? you know no one no one races forever so um and i i don't even notice he's not there anymore personally you know right, so right. First, i mean it was always a joy to speak to him you know debriefs because he would always be fantastic you know mm. um, he was all, he always in, he was never not interesting you know um but there's there's quite a few riders now that are interesting to speak to so
4: I think it's like you said, though. I mean, very difficult to ever have another Valentino Rossi. I mean, this was like a yeah. broad spectrum of everything he did. Yeah, I
3: mean, there's, nev- there's never been another Muhammad Ali, has there, you know, and he no. was fighting in the 60s, 70s. Uh, and there's never been a... I, mean, I don't know much about football, but there's not been a, another Maradona, has there? One, one of these guys that, you know, just kind of... I mean, obviously, <laughs> for, often for bad, the wrong reasons, but, you know, just became this sort of huge figure of of just fascination really you know
4: well maybe they just come along every once in a while to move humanity yeah forward oh, i mean you just
3: can't you can't expect to um i mean the thing we're racing now it's so professional and so scientific and so all-consuming that i remember gary nixon you know former american sort of superstar who died about five years ago he was very mm. big in the 70s saying to me you know these guys are going too fast to party now you know um you know they're just cold-blooded scientists now you know they 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 don't really have much time to sort of hang around and have a laugh and be characters you know
4: gary nixon was such a character we were we were riding with him at mid-ohio one time and he was he nearly knocked me and kent kunosuga off passing us going into these corners right and the thing that was most impressive about it was he was so hung over he needed help to get back into his lawn chair (laughs) 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 so i was so happy that (laughs) So happy he was. He was actually out on the track because he wouldn't want someone in that condition struggling with their launch.
3: I I loved Gary. I I kind of he was one of the first older riders. I've I've, I interviewed him like twenty years ago. Yeah, Uh, you know, and quickly realised that ex riders are generally the best riders to talk to because they got they can say whatever they like and they and, and they see stuff in better perspective, so they can, um, you know, and tell great stories and. And, um, so I kind of had a few interviews with him and, and then at the British Grand Prix, this would have been, he he was gophering for Nicky Hayden when Hayden arrived in 2003, 2004, he just wanted to come over. Cause obviously he knew Hayden from dirt track and, yeah, um, yeah. wanted to just come over and help him out basically. And, you know, and we were at Donington outside the Redgate bar and he came over to me and said, uh, Hey man, do you know where I can get any weed? And <laughs> And I said, well, I do actually, I do actually, uh, uh, Mr. Nixon, here's a bit. Do you want this? And he was like, <laughs> oh, man, thank you. I can never thank you enough, man. And then the last time I saw him alive, well, the last time I saw him was at Indy, Indianapolis in, oh, it would have been, oh, I don't know. No, sort of, no. yeah, no, I suppose it would have been, because I think he died in it
4: was the 2012 yeah. or something like that.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And I and I went down to turn one, because the inside of turn one, which is what you do at a dirt track, yeah, you go yeah, to yeah. turn one and um because there's nothing better than seeing a whole pack of you know and if you're on the inside you can nearly touch them you know and um who should be there but Gary Nixon and King Kenny Roberts sat on a on a um on an esky full of beers getting pissed you know <laughs> <laughs> and um and I've known Kenny for a long time and get on really well with him he's just comedy I just I love Kenny and um and Gary sort of the, you know, they're both sort of. You know, Kenny starts being rude to me, which is what he always does to everyone. He goes, hey, asshole, how you doing, motherfucker? And um Gary says, "Oh, I am." So goes into his pocket and brings out this little metal tube and unscrews it and passes me a couple of ready rolls as kind of thanks for what I gave him at Donington a couple of a few years uh, earlier. You uh, know, uh, uh, but uh, did uh, it kind uh. of with his back turned to Kenny because Kenny doesn't approve of that kind of stuff much, right? Um
4: because when you' are pissed, who wants, you don't want people smoking dope, right?
3: No, no yeah I, I mean i I adore King Kenny. he's just um just such a character, just so funny, and he just never stops hurling abuse at everybody, you know um i, I have a,
4: I have, a, I have a good mate of mine, and uh he he bid on and won one of Gary Nixon's jackets at a charity auction. And when he took it home, there was two prescriptions for narcotics in the pocket.
3: <laughs> I mean, Gary—he—he, he, one of those first interviews I did, he—he him, he smashed himself up the Transatlantic Match Races once at Brands or somewhere like that, and ended up in hospital in Britain for like a couple of weeks. And um, <laughs> he, his rider, you know, to come and do the Transatlantic was it was a, you know, a large cylinder of nitrous oxide, you know, and that wasn't for welding. You know, basically he was on the nitrous all the time. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously mean? not when he was
3: racing. Well, it gives you a high, doesn't it? I mean, um yeah, I mean it's very popular with the kids. I mean not one of my not one of my things. But um yeah, I mean they've just banned it here, you know, they just banned the sale of, you know, small cases of it. You see little the little sort of bullets of nitrous oxide all just scattered all over the place. And, and and then he was in hospital on the morphine, you know, and, and his phone bill was just vast because he was ringing his girlfriend for like two hours a day in, in the <laughs> States, you know, because he was high, high on morphine, you know, and just kind of rabbiting onto her, you know.
4: <laughs> yeah, I just always thought with Gary Nixon, like, you know, the greatest part about it was, as old as he was, was there was, still wasn't a race he couldn't win or a bird he couldn't pick up.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not all, but most motorbike races are dirty fuckers. You know i mean it's all part of the alpha male makeup basically you know i was at um well i was at Goodwood at the weekend and I, w- I won't say say the name but he's an old racer um used to be a grand prix racer in the 50s he's 89 and uh we were up at the top of the hill after doing our run he was still riding bikes there you know and um a marshal who knew him because he lives not far from goodwood sort of came over a woman marshal was probably 60 odd. You know and says, Oh hi, I can't, you know, I can't be here, not come say hi to you. And she she came over and said hi and, and straight away he he put his arm round her and then had his hand up inside a belt, you know, and you just said, Oh for fuck's sake, man, you're 89, give it a rest. But you know, that's that's motorbike races for you, you know. Except me, obviously, I'm very well
4: behaved. Right, well married and worried well behaved. So so basically, um Rossi left. I mean, Motor GP is moving on. I mean you're doing some really great insight, I think, in the, in the MotoGP world. I don't know if people know how to follow you, but, I mean, you're getting the sort of stuff that is very, very insightful from the riders, the mechanics, the electronics, the suspension. I mean, it's really – it's very interesting stuff. I mean, you enjoying that now?
3: Thanks. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, I love it. That's what, that's what mm. I love doing. I mean, I just – I mean, I had to do it for quite a while. Mm. I don't anymore you know my sort of work has changed the way I work has changed but you know basically I would have to write race reports like everybody else and, and mm. it's just and write news so and so to Honda so and so to Suzuki this happening that happening you know and I just it never really interested me much you know it's just fucking news who cares you know mm. you know I'm. <laughs> you know, it's not actually teaching me anything I'm not you know I want to learn stuff myself you know mm. I want I want to go digging you know some rider will say something about something and I'll go oh you know, and then and then go and ask an engineer, and you will say, yeah, th- th- that's this, that, and the other. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I'll go and ask a tire guy about it, and a suspension guy, and you know, and just build up a story. And hopefully, you know, I like. I'm not saying I do it all the time, but I like writing writing stuff that other people haven't written. You know? Mm. you know, there's a lot of journalists, and I'm not being nasty here. Um, there's a lot of journalists in the pa- in the pa- in the press room, and this is because it's their job. Who are just there all writing the same bloody stories? You know, right? You know, like you know, Will Marquez, Lee Honda, oh, da, 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 you know um this happening uh, yeah i enjoyed
4: the one the other day with jonas Folger, like given that perspective right yeah like yeah i motor gp then and being coming yeah. back to it now with the changes i mean that yeah. to me is so you're
3: all you're always thinking how you know how where's an angle where's a different angle and i was suddenly thought yeah Folger. so the last time he rode a motor gp raced a gp bike was in 2017 and now he's back now um uh he, he got sick he got sick he got sick so he couldn't race for a few years and he's you need now back as a test rider for ktm but obviously when paul espagro got hurt he was drafted in you know he's a couple of seconds off the pace but you know that's pretty fucking good you know that's fast you know and very few people you know i think if you put most superbike riders well oh, it's, it's not an argument i want to get into but maybe it was a second and a half to two seconds off the pace which is you know not not a lot and and but he was the one guy i suddenly thought he's the one guy that can actually give you the exact comparison between a 2017 MotoGP bike, which was just when wings were starting to come in and before all the devices, and a and a 2023 MotoGP bike. And, and and he was just brilliant at that, just ex- intelligent guy, perfect English. Um, and, you know, a lot of the stuff he was saying was just sounded horrible, you know. The way they have to ride these bikes, you can't ride a MotoGP bike naturally anymore. It's not like a normal motorcycle. You have to ride it the way the engineer tells you you know, he'll say, right, you've got to use 1.5 brake bar brake pressure at 40 degrees into that corner. And then you've got to uh, use 50% throttle at sort of 45 degrees coming out of that corner. You know, I mean, it's so technical now. And you've got to put you can put your arm, you can put your knee out there, because it won't affect the arrow, but don't put your knee out there, because it will affect the arrow, all this kind of stuff, because you know, because they, they've got so much data now, that they can see exactly what works. So, you know, in so many ways, it's getting more and more like F1, you know, that the rider, uh, the rider just can't make the difference anymore because you have to ride the bike the way it tells it needs to be ridden, you know. Um, So I I think there's a lot of sort of um, technical directions that the sport is taking, which I don't, the championship is taking, that I don't like at the moment. But the problem is the way the rules are decided, which is by unanimous factory support, um they won't they can't change you know because Ducati's never going to vote for um and and some of the others wouldn't either to to get rid of you know all these you know all the downforce aero and the ride high devices and the whole shot devices and all that kind of stuff you know um at Goodwood Casey Stoner did a like 20-minute debrief with a journalist and um just basically spent uh Casey's a bit like me, he's a bit of a kind of negative gla- glass three quarters empty kind of guy, so he's always whinging like me, I like, I like a good whinge and a good moan.
4: was being English, just... right? If we're not whinging, we're not happy, right? Exactly, exactly. And
3: um, <laughs> and he spent 20 minutes slagging off the championship, saying where it was going wrong, you know, basically for all the reasons I've just told you. Um, and it was funny because Dorna were filming the the, the interview with a camera crew. I, I've not seen them use it one word of it. You know, although well, a couple of words when he was talking about other things. But he, he we were talking to him for about 20 minutes and he spent about 15 of that just saying.
4: Just moaning right.
3: Just said well, I mean, you know, I, I agree with him. You know, I agree. You know, he's all about give control back to the rider. You know, you don't need anti-wheelie. Why do you need anti-wheelie? You know, that's the job of the rider to get over the front of the bike and modulate the throttle you know, to keep the front end just high enough so he's got good acceleration, but not so high that he has to shut off and lose acceleration. You don't need a computer to help you with that. Um, And this is why we don't see the riders clambering around the bikes as much, you know. I mean, we still see the KTM, I think, could be ridden a bit more loosely. We see Binder, you know, he, you know, the only way, yeah, the only way he he says he, he hates, (laughs) I asked him about it the last race, and he says he hates the feeling of the rear tire being behind him because that, that also because then it's overloading the front you know because all the weight's going on the front so if he kicks it out to the side that's actually how it starts breaking, and he just keeps it sideways the whole time because obviously he's helping stop the bike by that by skidding the rear tire and he's also taking load off the front tire so you know i, I love all that kind of stuff I, I love i love those i love that kind of stuff you know because it just makes me think holy fuck you know um i i think MotoGP gp is quite a difficult sport to appreciate unless you've got a reasonable idea of what motorbikes are like to ride or race or whatever um which i which is why it's a small sport because unless you've ridden a motorbike I, d- I think it's very difficult to appreciate it which is why it's only big in the countries where people ride motorbikes you know be it um spain italy um and, and southeast asia you know
4: it is a bit sad but, you know when i worked for speed channel that used to run well then ama superbike races world superbike and motor gp racing i used to look at the numbers. The stats and the figures on the, the viewership. And yeah. if you could have seen the numbers the year Nikki Hayden was Laguna Seca on American soil as the number one rider in the world and compare it to the most generic truck pulling or, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. polishing, whatever yeah. bullshit speed used to run, you'd being like, what the fuck? Like, like, does nobody in this country watch? I mean, it was just pathetic numbers, really. Yeah, it's, it's I had sad. a very generic very I had a generic travel show on the, the network at the time, and speed hated us, the, the of yeah. speed. So they used to hide my show on over the weekend at like two in the morning or three in the morning. And those days people yeah. would have to Tvo it to see it. And so then that wouldn't give very good numbers. And our numbers were way better than MotoGP. For just yeah. a generic travel show so yeah. it's definitely not coming from america it's a more european
3: Australian. yeah no absolutely and, and and i kind of like i was saying earlier i don't i don't really care that it's an e-sport you know i enjoy it and if long as some people enjoy it that's fine by me you know <laughs>
4: As long as they sell enough motorcycles to keep doing it, that's all I care
3: about. No, ex- exactly. And also, like I said, you want the track to be busy. You know, you want there to be loads of fans and them all to be having a good time and making a lot of noise. And I love all that, you know, um, but that it, that you can still be a, like Le Mans, you know, it was 278,000 people over three days, you know, so that's 100,000 by the track every day. And that was fantastic. You know, you really... Um, and that and that's all it takes, really. You know, you don't need millions of people. And and trying to get more people in is always, you know, it's kind of, you know, will they then be real fans? Um and and, and when people really make it's kind of stopped now, but but before the pandemic, a lot of the sponsors and teams were getting um YouTube influencers and Instagram influencers in to kind of, you know, to try and boost the sports profile. But you know, it, it never did shit, you know it just again you know people it, i it's it's a real it's a strange sport you know if you're into it you're into it and if you're not you're not and i think i mean obviously you want as many people to be in it as as possible but i think um i think try to chase after a new audience you can you you can be very you need to be wary about um losing your core audience you know if you start trying to appeal to people that viewers that don't even exist yet Yeah, you know are you actually going to piss off the people that already do exist i think you know that's a real that can really happen if you're not careful i mean it's the same with the sprint races this year i think it's really divided people i mean everybody everybody likes everybody likes a motorbike race but i don't like them because it's kind of completely changed the weekend you know you know it used to have a natural build-up to the you know friday Mm. was kind of pretty you know getting going and then sun saturday was qualifying oh that's really important then sunday boom two o'clock here's the fucking race you know mm. now it's like well we've already had a race so uh oh there's another one you know and yeah i just and also the amount of crashes is up 20 percent on last year, insane this last- year isn't it? yeah yeah and i mean i think uh a colleague of mine simon patterson worked out that this year, the number of riders missing races is up four times this year on, on the life. I don't
4: remember a season with so many people out in June. No. Well, that's
3: what happens because they're going out and I mean, they've actually just today changed the rules. So making the first practice back into a free practice session. So it doesn't count towards qualifying one and qualifying two, but, um, you know, you were having guys doing qualifying runs at the end of Friday practice. So everybody, I mean, in the old days, you'd have two like super high risk points, it was qualifying on saturday i mean i'm talking 10 15 years ago i I don't mind the 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 quick qualifying format i quite like that um so like years ago you had the qualifying on saturday afternoon and then the race on sunday now you have fp1 fp2 q1 q2 sprint race real race that's six you know and and and, you know so it's complete it's a safety thing you know It's Mm. after decades of trying to make it safer. It's now more dangerous, and I think you know it's GP is meant to be as safe as it is, you know, as it can be, you know. But you know, money money talks.
4: Look how many people are injured or or carried. Well,
3: that's that's the thing. I mean, the the, I think six the last seven races, no, the last six races take place over seven weekends, and they're in the Far East, Australia, Middle East, and Europe. so six weekends out of seven uh, across all those different continents i mean it's just insane i mean w- what mess of people are going to be in by the time they get to the last race in valencia i have no idea which is at the end of november when it's going to be freezing cold you know i just um i, I think sometimes Dorna, you know and i I don't i only i only you know i, I think Dorna in many ways do a great job but i i'm quite, quite happy to criticize them when i don't think they do and and I think um, you know the current system isn't good. You know, it's really not good. It's
4: Valencia uh, in November. I mean, it's
3: just... late November. I mean, it's been mid, and then and then it's gone to. You know, yeah, it's it's uh, it's risky. You know, I I sometimes think Dorna don't understand that motorbikes are dangerous. You know what I mean? That we keep copying, we keep copying car racing, Formula One, and in, and in how, how we you know sprint races, expanding the calendar more and more. But you know, when you crash a Formula One car, ninety-nine times out of hundred, you just get out and walk back to the garage you know a motorbike isn't the same and you know, even when a rider crashes and it says rider okay quite often they're not they're in a lot of pain but there's not a rider on the grid that isn't carrying new or old injuries ever really yeah you know, they're all hurt no I, I wouldn't i wouldn't say so because they crash so much now because they're chasing tens and you know, hundreds and thousands every bloody lap aren't they you know you, they're, they're all pushing to the limit and the beyond all the time you know which is yeah and that's that, that's why they crash so often you know
4: but it is quite fascinating that you have such a ringside seat to it though i mean it's a, it's a very very unique perspective that very few people get to see it so closely from the inside
3: i mean you 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 never become blase because you know you know these guys are just you know complaining about safety getting worse but what has always appealed to me about racing and motorbikes and me riding and racing and stuff is it's not the danger but that that's what makes it kind of feel Important to me that these guys are actually going out there and risking their lives, you know, and they still, even in MotoGP, they do still get killed, you know, and um, and, and that to me gives it a kind of gravitas that a lot of the sports don't have, you know. It was like Ernest Hemingway said, "There's only three real sports." I think he said uh, mountaineering, uh, motor racing, which would include motorbikes, and bullfighting. You know, he obviously loved bullfighting, uh, so they're all three sports, and he said the rest of me are mere games, you know. And I'd kind mm. of agree with him, You know, I hate bullfighting, but um, mountaineering. Wow, well, you know, you've got to have big balls on you to do that if you're doing it properly. Not climbing up Everest in a queue, you know. But but if you're doing a, a you know proper proper climb, proper mountaineering, oh yeah, uh, proper motor racing, it's it's pretty pretty. You know, you're putting your life on the line happily. You know, you want you're doing it because you want to. You know, and I think that kind of that gives it a, a certain gravitas and definitely a different dynamic, a different dimension to other sports. You know. Um, because you've got to be a supreme athlete you've got to have an athlete's body you've got to have an athlete's brain but also you've got something else you know like the tt every time you head down bray hill you know you know it might be the last time you know um which makes it very special you know you don't want anybody to die but that the fact that riders are having to psycho psychologically deal with that stuff i find fascinating you know
4: Mm. so what what's next for you um In life and your career and movement, I mean, do you have specific goals? Are you? No,
3: I've I've never had in racing and in my work. I've never. I've just plodded along, really. (laughs) And what will be, will be. You know. Yeah. Um. I mean, I used to say to mates, if I'm still doing this job when I'm 50, shoot me. You know, because I kind of, you know, okay you like the 800s that period in the late 2000s. You know, when the racing got really boring, I was like, oh man, I've had enough of this. And Mm -hmm. uh, quite a few of the riders were a bit boring. You know, just you know, it was just, oh God, get me out of here. And, and and here I am now, I'm 64. I'm still doing it. So as for the future, well, I mean, uh, not a lot really, I guess, you know, I'll probably go down a half races next year because it's getting so hideously expensive to travel. Um, and then just go year by year and just keep doing it as long as I want to do it. You know,
4: is there a book in the future?
3: Um, yes, there's mm-hmm. going to be books in the future. I, I'm, I'm, currently doing one called Ra- racing hitler which is yeah. um about a, something that happened in the 1930s it's a, it's a bit like stealing speed but it's about this british guy um r- racing the germans and the italians you know obviously both got fascist government back so it's kind mm. of motorbikes racing industry politics all mashed up into one great story mm. um and i'm going to do i hate to use the word autobiography because you know
4: well, that's what is I was a, going to say. Is
3: there, a, is there an a, autobiography coming? Well, I mean, I've I've kind of been making notes for a, a year or two, but it's really difficult to write about yourself. It's a completely different ball game to writing about other people, you know, because you don't want to sound like a complete cunt or a complete prick, do you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you're trying to not sound like a complete prick. And, so trying to
4: find the right voice to discuss. Exactly. So
3: I've been re- reading a lot of autobiographies and reading a lot of Hunter S Thompson and you know trying to find a way of talking about yourself where you don't just sound, sound like a complete idiot um because obviously there's the journalism that I've done the racing I've done and and other stuff and and then being in the paddock f- for all these times so there's like my racing um and and then being a MotoGP journalist that would be the, that's the two stories you know
4: yeah and that beginning period of time where the industry changed and shifted right? yeah
3: yeah and and also just being a biker in the 70s was
4: you know there's lots of of great tales from
3: that I mean just the kind of crazy things you you know I think that not just me just sort of everyone did back then everybody was a lot mad back then I think you know
4: it's all a bit sane now isn't it
3: yeah I mean you know I I think it's very hard to get away with riding like a maniac nowadays and you get locked up if you do you know you don't just get a wrap on the knuckles you get fucking locked up so um and obviously I don't condone people riding like maniacs but I do like seeing them ride like maniacs you know there was a guy at the Festival of Speed on, on on the I think it was on the Friday, was it? No, on the Thursday when I was there, riding up on a on a Norton road bike. And he had this supercharged engine with a fairly long wheelbase. I don't know what it was. And it's a mile-long hill climb. And all the way up and all the way down, he was doing a rolling burnout, just smoking the rear tire and just do it going from opposite lock left to opposite lock right to opposite and just yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was riding along behind him on the way down. I was just and just watching just like thinking this is just fantastic you know just fantastic so yeah i mean that that's probably it i'll probably you know just write less and less until i've had until i keel over and die probably um but i like i say, i just have no plans just take it as it comes see if i enjoy being lazy yeah i kind of am lazy but um i'm not sure how much i'll enjoy doing nothing I, i may get into it you know i've got a lot of drinking time to catch up on with all my mates yeah.
4: right we're looking at the pubs open every day so it's not like
3: well no exactly out. and and the thing about getting old is that you but your body doesn't matter anymore you know you haven't got anything to look after it's like <laughs> it's like it's like owning an old car that's all beaten right. up and dinged you don't have to and, clean and, it anymore right no exactly you can just completely fuck it to pieces and and it doesn't matter because because it's right. near the end of its life anyway right it's, it's done not its like job got, now yeah exactly you've not got like a brand new aston martin that you're I've never had a car like that. Never want one either. But um, that you're kind of worried about, and and you know, it's like having an old Ford Fiesta, like my my first ever car, which was just dinged all over. You know, I didn't give a fuck about it. <laughs> okay. And you kind of, I feel like that about my own body now. You know, it just it right. doesn't matter. You know, it's I'm 64, so I have no particular um desire to live to a ripe old age. You know, I think I'd much rather burn out, you know, than than fizzle out. You know, yeah.
4: I'm
3: very with. Very with Hunter S. Thompson on that, you know, he was basically life. You know, you shouldn't be trying to preserve your body and then dying, dying and leaving a, you know, a, a good sort of, you know, healthy looking skeleton. You know, you you should be just fucking using it up, it, using up your body and just yeah, and, yeah. at the end just going whoo You know, that was a ride, wasn't it? That you was know, you, a
4: hell of a ride. Well, just, I mean, I mean, it's been a hell of a ride to hear. So, I mean, there's no reason that it shouldn't continue, right?
3: Well, yeah, hopefully, you know, yeah. I mean, you know. I love having front getting out, going out, and getting messed up with my mates. So long may that continue, and um, yeah, and yeah, I'll be going to MotoGP races for a while, um, but yeah, just take it as it comes.
4: One thing that just suddenly jumped in my mind from when you were talking about Graziano Rossi. Um, do you remember him racing a KB1 Bimota?
3: No, I mean I've I, I used a photo of that in. I think it was an endurance race in Italy or something. I I only remember him racing,
4: but he did. He raced a KB1 promoter, right? Yeah, he
3: did. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah.
4: I know where that is.
3: Oh, really? Wow.
4: So, okay. when you come to the states, we'll
3: okay. And see it. D- okay. Wow. Cool. And we yeah. Should, no, we I, should... I only I only remember him racing once. I Only saw him racing once, which was at Silverson in seventy okay. nine. I think. Yeah. That was the year he won several two fifty Grand Prixs on the MBA two fifty two stroke and um and he had these amazing leathers like white leathers with the kind of um yellow and red so the italian tricolori like lightning flash all the way down the, and then the same over his helmet and i was like wow that's so cool and they had this long hair he looked like jesus you know long hair and a beard and <laughs> he really looked like jesus and so I, you know so even then i kind of that kind of the kind of rock and roll side of it kind of appealed to me you know the kind of trim well-presented racer does you know i want them to be, i want them to be nutters you know that's what i want um right. they and, not just, and he was leading
4: like
3: yeah yeah he was leading the 250 race at Silverstone by about five seconds on the last lap and crashed for two quarters to go you know i just thought that's awesome that's just awesome he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't care he's yeah, just like that, got um, it pinned and he's just going for it you know
4: yeah his his old race bike is not far from here friend of mine. right wow
3: it? okay well wow.
4: we need to talk him into getting it running and taking it out for a spin that's what we need
3: well yeah talk. yeah i mean probably probably valentino would probably give you whoever owns it quite a lot of money for it i mean, I would imagine because i think valentino is going to build himself a museum at some point um well i mean he certainly should you know it would it would work he well, he was talking about it a year a few years ago and it's gone quiet now but you know i mean he's got a lot of stuff um yeah and i think his his kind of his um fame will endure you know for you know the the kids and the youngsters that grew up with him will still want to go and see the museum for another twenty years. I'd say. Who
4: yeah, was? he's not going to. No. He's not going to fade away, is he?
3: No, no, no.
4: Well, Matt, we should let you get on. You've probably got the the pub must be open by now, right?
3: Yeah, bang out some words about what am I writing about now? I Can never remember. I just always got about eight things on the curve. <laughs> oh
4: dear! At the
3: same Where, time, yeah.
4: What's the best place for people to find your writing these days if they want to? Okay, easy
3: so um. I'm on. I'm. I'm. I'm a bit of a Twitter addict. So kind of, if and, and pretty much everything I write online.
4: Yeah, which, you can always go to Twitter um, and click a link, right? Yeah, yeah. That's
3: so the... my, my Twitter handle is at Matt Oxley. So M A T O X O X. I can't even spell my own name. M A T O X L E Y, all one word. At Matt Oxley on Twitter. That's the best place to find me. And I write stuff for Motorsport Magazine, and and the website is motorsportmagazine.com co.uk i think so yeah, I but do they weekly... can most,
4: and they can they can also get that link through um your instagram From twitter yeah or exactly
3: twitter YouTube yeah twitter. i mean i'm on instagram as well but twitter is the best place to find me um, and i kind of do a lot when i'm at races i, I tweet a lot i take pics of this bit on a bike and say oh there's this bit this is this is a new thing and i've also started doing a weekly podcast as well with peter bomb who's a MotoGP gp engineer so he really knows his stuff. I mean, I'm not an engineer mm. by any no, I'm a million miles away from being an engineer. Uh, but you know, it's very if I want to know something about engineering, I go and ask an engineer. You know, that's how I get my knowledge. Yeah. I, I, I can't look at something and go, oh, that does that because of that. You know, I have to go and ask an engineer. But so we do So it's just called the Oxley Bomb, B O M. That's his name, Peter Bomb from the Netherlands. And, you know, the number one thing to me about Grand Prix is that you've got the best riders in the world and the best engineers in the world. You know, and that's that's it to me. <laughs> that's all I want. You know, I want them both fighting,
1: you know,
4: each other.
3: You know, the riders fighting the riders and the engineers fighting the engineers. You know.
1: All
4: right, Matt. Well, thank you very much.
3: No, thank you. Really enjoyed it.